Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. On the panel with me tonight, from the far end, Dr Joe Hope, who's an ARC Future Fellow. His interest in quantum physics intersects with a keen interest in aligning the undergraduate physics experience more closely with the experience of the modern physics researcher. And he's also a part of the Scientists in Schools project, where he talks about his work with local high school students. Next to him, Professor Sanjay Sama, who's a professor of mechanical engineering, but also director of digital learning at the renowned Massachusetts Institute of Technology. A man often described as a radical innovator and a professional disruptor. Someone who's really keen to take a hard look at existing patterns and to challenge their validity. Next to him, Laura Way, a science student and an education officer with the ANU Students Association. And next to her, Caitlin Baljack, a year 10 student, a 15-year-old student from St. Clair's, who can't decide between science and politics and in the meantime is compromising by studying zombies. <laughs> you should never tell me anything when you're sitting next to me in these preparation <laughs> stages. <laughs> We're going to kick off the discussion in just a moment, but I want you all to put your thinking caps on too because much of the energy from this comes from you, your questions and your experiences. What we're going to try hard not to do is to make this a 90-minute lecture from very important people who will tell you what to think. We will have some roving microphones, and I would ask you to just catch my eye, catch the eye of the people with the microphones, and we'll get to you as quickly as possible. But please do wait for the microphone to arrive so that we can all hear you, and that's also obviously important for the streaming experience. And just be patient too, because the way these things run, I find everyone gets fired up at about the same time. So we're not ignoring you. We're just trying to juggle the needs of the room and give everyone the best possible chance to speak. Event, the event, of course, is being live streamed, so just be beware of that if you do indeed intend to blow up the lecture. Uh, please switch your phones to, to silent. And as Marnie says, as has become absolutely vital at these events, don't just sit there, tweet, tweet. We have a sign in the green room at the ABC that says just that. And I often think, what, don't get a drink of water, don't go to the loo just before you're about to go on radio, just tweet, for goodness sake. <laughs> so the hashtags are with you. But Sanjay Sama, let me begin with you. We've been honing the lecture for... Hundreds of years, we've been polishing this gem that originated with the Italian Renaissance. So what's wrong with that? Well, it's been polished to be, uh, it's like processed food. We've been <laughs> polishing processed food for uh, 200 years and we're, you know, we're going back to organic food. Just because we've been uh, honing it uh, doesn't mean it's good. There are th things about the lecture that are good. They're inspiring. The really good lectures are inspiring. But the fact of the matter is, the lecture was invented to turn education into a factory-style product. We could pump students in at one end and hopefully they come out educated at the other end. Uh, as I said, there are some good things about it, but we know that there are many things about it that don't work. 
And we didn't have a choice, but now with digital learning tools, we have a choice. And I think it behooves us to see what the choices are and to see what we can change. How do you know that it doesn't work? What's the evidence for it not working? Well, uh, there's studies that, sh uh, that, study, uh, there's studies that uh, look at uh, brain activity of students. And uh, uh, there is a professor, Eric Mazur at Harvard, who looked at brain activity of students uh, during lectures. And I think it's uh, worse than while watching TV and close to while they're sleeping. <laughs> well, uh, students don't particularly like them. We know for a fact that the short-term memory of uh, most people you know, fills up, frankly, after about 10 or 15 minutes. And then you, know, you start, start, start taking notes to, if you're diligent, or you just zone out, right? There's a lot of evidence that shows that if we wanted to do it right, our lectures would be 10 minutes or 15 minutes. But there's no practical way to do a 15-minute lecture in this setting, right? But with online, you can do it. We also know that um, students sometimes uh, don't get what, you're, what the professor is saying. Usually, it's the professor's fault or the students. And very few students actually put up their hand and ask a question. And then they learn more stuff based on weak foundations, and they don't have any recourse. These are all very well known. We've known, them for 50, known these facts for 50 years. Mm. Now we have an opportunity to fix it, and I think we ought to. Joe, tell me about your experience as a lecturer, because you took the decision to toss out the lectures. Yeah, what happened? So uh, I'm actually a fan of the lecture in certain contexts, right? So it's, it's not that lectures are automatically bad, and all the polishing we've done has told us some ways to do it better. The point is that they're just not as good a learning experience as they could be. And so there's a lot of inefficiency. If you're sitting in a lecture and something's being explained to you, maybe it's exactly the right pace for you to understand. Of course, that means everyone a little bit faster than you, it's too slow, everyone a bit slower, it's, they missed it. And so if you're pitching a lecture to lots of people, which is their purpose, right, you can't pitch it at the right speed. It's, it's literally impossible. It's not like you're doing it wrong, it's that there are more than two people in the room and therefore you can't pitch it at the right speed. And when you try and add active elements, like we all know that the best way to teach is to get people doing things and active and, and try and get over that zombification process. But there's no correct amount of time to set a task. Right? So nearly everything that we do in lectures that works, works if you do it at the right time for one person. And so my goal was to try and make all the things I do in lectures self-paced. And so I, I stopped giving lectures. I actually asked my students at the end of one year, I'm thinking of not giving lectures next year. What do you think? And they all babbled at me in panic, more or less. Um, and then over the next couple of weeks, each one of them appeared in my doorway, you know, sort of spontaneously saying, I've been thinking about what you said about lectures. And actually, you know, as long as I got this and that, you know, you could toss the lecture. And so I took the plunge and didn't do lectures. I just did it all on video, indeed, in five, ten-minute bursts with questions. And suddenly all the activities that they were doing kind of in lockstep are now, were now all self-paced and took vastly less time. So a 15-minute lecture took 15 minutes of video in three chunks. And that extra time that we saved up, we managed to use differently in face-to-face -face time, which um, was an extremely popular move and seems to have helped a little bit. Yeah. How did you know that it was working, and, and how could you measure that when you were using two such radically different pedagogical methods? Excellent question. And the, the short answer is you can't, with the size of my class, get a sort of statistically significant thing. But what you get is a lot of anecdotal kind of feel. The first thing is we surveyed them heavily, and 
they liked it. Now this is actually not great educational um, evidence because pretty much any change you make, students traditionally like. It doesn't mean they learn more. And so the only really way to find out whether you're doing good is to test them. And because we kind of liked the kinds of assessment we're doing in this course in the past, we just kept that the same. And over time, we will get enough statistics to say, yes, that was better, no, it wasn't. You know? Currently, it's, it's better, but within error bars, so I can't tell you. Did you get any opposition from within the university? Um, that's, a, that's a complicated question. So the, the students traditionally are very conservative. And so the, the opposition you're most afraid of is if the students engage or not. You know? um, and so I spent the very first face-to-face -face times, before they saw a video, we had a three-hour workshop together. And I explained why I was doing it in, in great detail. Uh, and they bought it, basically. So, so there was no real opposition there. And from a sort of institutional point of view, everyone in the university is keen to do the teaching better. You know, this is a, this is a, our purpose, you know, to, to teach and research. And so if we, if we do it better or, or try and do it better, then you, know, you get a lot of support. Mm. Laura, you've sat through science lectures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how well or how badly you think the present model works. I guess it depends on the lecture and the course. Mm. I've been to lectures, I've attended lectures sometimes where the lecture is brilliant and I'll make the effort to go to class. Similarly, I've had other courses where I'm not impressed with the lecturer and for other reasons, working, other things that students have to do nowadays, I don't go. So I guess it really does depend on the course and the lecturer. But just coming back to what Joe said, the students that you were speaking to initially were hesitant and then when they came back, they were a bit keen if they had the this and the that. And I think that's what it comes down to. If you're going to take lectures away or if you're going to try something else, you've got to have the this and the that. And that's tutorials where people can go and drop in and speak to someone who will help or engaging videos or an online discussion forum, an opportunity to seek face-to-face -face contact. So I guess it's just different for every situation. And, and you just mentioned a moment ago the kinds of things that university students are juggling today. And that's very different to what perhaps people my age who were at university 20 or 30 years ago might have experienced when we were pretty much at university and you might have had a, a part-time job pulling beers on a Saturday night. Now lots of people are working full-time. The pressures are significantly different, aren't they? Yes, definitely. And your average undergraduate doesn't really exist anymore. So you've got 17-year-olds coming from interstate to ANU who are living in residential colleges and to get to a lecture they've just got a bike for five minutes. You've got mature age students, you've got people doing a second degree and each student is going to have a different way that they learn best and different things that they're juggling and I think this is an opportunity to try new things and try a package that can cater for many different students in the best way possible. Caitlin, you're not here yet, and I, hope you, I know you're hoping to go to ANU at one stage or another, but how does this compare with what you're experiencing in a secondary classroom? Can you make a comparison? Um, certainly. Um, while lecturing might be a bit different at a secondary school, um, there's still sort of the concept of a person standing out the front of the classroom telling you what you need to learn um, or giving you a worksheet about what you have to do but um, students now and um, sort of education is going the way that engagement is the way for most students to learn. It's um, for people, because engagement, um, particularly with the rise of smartphone technology, is becoming more and more abundant um, within the student population. We're used to being able to connect um, to various people, um, various organisations with the click of a button. And so the ability to have that same sort of um, instant interaction or discussion um, within classrooms is becoming um, more and more apparent and um, is really 
um, sort of looking what I've talked with my friends, a better way of engaging and a better way of um, memory retention and learning for them. And this is really interesting because you and Laura are both probably digital natives. People, you know, there are some of us sitting here who remember the first time we ever laid eyes on a computer. <laughs> I know that's not you. But, but what are you hoping for from your university experience? What do you expect will happen? Um, well, I'm hoping that I will be able to access um, textbooks, course information, all on smartphone devices, so that wherever I go, I can take it with me. Um, sort of understanding what um, you're talking about with full-time work and stuff, that it's not always like conventional to have set hours. Being able to go at perhaps like 9 o'clock at night and being able to um, view an online tutorial or a lecture is very convenient for a lot of people who don't have regular schedules. So you, you want to learn, but you want a, a multiplicity of ways to do it because you're expecting to be juggling lots of different things. Yes, certainly. Yeah. Uh, Sanjay, if we're talking about replacing the traditional lecture, then with what? With projects, with activities, uh, you know, if you if you go into, and I'm speaking with a little bit of an engineering bent here, but uh, just uh, picking, if you take an engineering topic, um, you know, I sit a student down or a hundred of them at a time, and I tell them, trust me, you're going to do need this, and I tell them, repeatedly, three times a week, for thirteen weeks, right, and they got to trust me for thirteen weeks and build this edifice in the hope that at some point this is going to be useful. Now, just imagine. If we did what Joe's doing, and we've done that in a few classes, you flip the classroom, and now there's a project. And it's the project that causes the student to pull in the knowledge as it becomes necessary, right? Now, if you do that, you, for the first time, have given students context. You've told them why something's important. And the, the, you, you give them a place to put it in their brain. It's organized. You've gone from a meal plan, a force-feeding <laughs> process, to a dim sum bar, right? <laughs> but you eat what you want as you need it. So um, that's what you do. Um, and I, I, I feel that um, you know, students in this generation across the planet are more used to this, uh, this way of learning, and they're more creative. And I think, frankly, it's more fun. It's OK to be fun. I don't think lectures should apologize for being fun or but classes. But if we're talking about how this can happen in a digital environment, it's got to be rich, hasn't it? Because if all we do is replace face-to-face -face learning with straightforward digital material, then that's, that's really just replicating a textbook online, and that is almost pointless or, or worse. Absolutely. So uh, a principle that we follow and I follow at MIT is conservation of face time or increase of face time. So, um, you know, a bunch of MIT faculty and students and staff, we thought a lot about what makes MIT special. And we came up with a very technical term for it, the magic. It's the magic of MIT. It's the serendipity, it's the conversations, the hallway conversations, the coffee, the bad ideas, the good ideas, the experiments, blowing something up. <laughs> um, and so we decided the reason we're doing online is to enrich and increase magic time. And we feel that lectures encroach and take away from magic time because you have one person ranting on stage for 80 minutes. Well, the students are kind of you know, leaning back in their seats. So absolutely, the whole point of this is to increase the magic, mm. not by any means to decrease it. And it sounds to me like what you're describing is a much less hierarchical and far more collaborative process. Without a doubt, if a student calls me dude, <laughs> I take it as a great uh, compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, um, what are the benefits for a student from a, a good online experience? How can it how can it meet their actual needs? I guess, first and foremost, it's the time constraint and it's the convenience of a student juggling lots of things, 
being able to access the material when it suits them. Um, also, it's just the ability to access it at the speed that suits you. So I, when I attend lectures personally, I always re-watch it because I will miss something and I will want to pause, rewind, watch it again, go, what did they just say? Look up something on Wikipedia, re-watch it, go, okay, I get that. And that's something that you can't do in a lecture and you can do with online material. But what you also want to have is something that's not like a fake artificial environment with a discussion board where people are given one class point to post something once a week and no one actually uses and engages it. So you want it to be something that's going to supplement and prepare you for when you come into class to debate and do problem-based learning um, and to really talk things through with your peers. It, it sounds to me, though, as if you're describing some experiences where that didn't go so well, and I know exactly what you mean about the artificiality of the discussion board, so here yeah. we all are, host <laughs> in this section, yeah. and that that's, that's both sort of awkward and, and actually quite discouraging for students. Yeah, I guess when we are digital natives and we are used to Facebook group discussion and tweeting and all these other media that we use, when you're forced to, in a we have Waddle and our discussion forums can either be dead or they can be excellent depending on the way that the lecturer and course convener uses them. And I see similar issues with other forms of online learning. It's up to the convener how tech savvy they are to be able to make it work and really to pitch it to students that they're going to actually engage with it so it's not going to be a detriment to their learning by taking away that face-to-face -face time. Mm. And uh, Caitlin, I, I just wonder about that. When Laura mentioned a moment ago, Facebook, Twitter, those kinds of mechanisms, uh, sometimes that's a, a way that you can skitter from point to point without engaging very deeply. Is that a little bit of a concern with what we're describing? Uh, yeah, this can be a, a point because um, when you're talking on Facebook and just social media in general, um, you can switch from conversation to conversation as quick as you can right here talking face to face. And the problem with that is, yeah, sometimes not getting as in-depth into a topic as you might like or getting distracted by another point. Mm, absolutely. Um, Joe, is this inherently more challenging for a lecturer? What does it ask of you in terms of, of flexible thinking? I don't think so. I think it's exactly the same job. So when I made the videos for my course, they're a little bit different to lecturing, but actually it's much more like lecturing than say the, um, the process of doing the workshops was. So the, the videos, they're far more information dense deliberately. They uh, cover actually more material as well. So the explanations are more detailed. It's all there, really tight. It's tight because it's death rewatching something. Like, so, Laura, when you rewatch something, isn't it just suck your soul out, yes, right? Yes, it does. Right, so, <laughs> so having that information density does make this ability to access it multiple times really, really um, viable, really. Um, but the, the workshops are like all the good bits of lecturing. You know, they're, they're like the bit where you actually get to find out what people are thinking and doing and where you, you see the spark. Like the whole point of running a workshop is to get them doing the task, the project, get a buzz in the room. That's, that's the joy, that's why you like teaching in the first place. So the difference, I guess, is that I didn't know what I was doing when I was doing a workshop because I hadn't sort of practiced the form as much, I guess. And there's, because you now have a better format for doing more interesting things, uh, there's more to explore, right? but uh, at some level, it's it's the same thing, and so it's not so much harder as just a bit more new to me. Yeah. 
It was really interesting hearing both Laura and Caitlin describe their absolute expectation that there'll be multiple platforms for accessing information, that they'll be juggling a lot of different elements in their lives. And you would have seen students' own expectations about how they will learn change quite substantially, I would imagine, with this interaction with, with digital media in the last decade. Actually, it's, it's one of the things that I have to make sure... I was right on the edge of the sort of the computer sort of change. And I have to just make sure that I keep clear in my mind that information doesn't have a place anymore. Like getting access to information is cheap. The perfect explanation of point X is a click away always. So that's never, first of all, you provide that, right? But then that problem is solved forever. And so the, the new question is, what is face-to-face -face time for? You know, so the, the, the answer for me is actually to combat some of this multitasking and let people get into things. You need time, you need a bit of space, you need to take away some of those pressures. So when I made those workshops, one of the decisions I made was to make them not assessed, but compulsory, so you had to be there. But once you're in the room, it's okay to think now, and you've got a whole bunch of time to do it. And you make connections when you play with something. So my, my, one of my guide words for those workshops was I wanted to play, you know, to play with a thing. You know, when, you, when you're dealing with a complicated, tough task, you don't just hear it. You hear it and then you kind of think about it in different contexts. You turn it around in your mind and, you know, you kind of know it better that night than when you just heard it, if, it, if it's something that you're still engaging with. And uh, so I didn't want to spend any time any, on the problem of getting access to information, but I wanted to try and make a space where students could play. And maybe that's actually going to become rarer in the future and less habitual, you know, like less of a natural thing to do. And yet we know for also all sorts of various reasons that that's critical to long-term understanding and be able to apply these ideas across, you know, in different contexts and so forth. Sanjay, the value of play, what do you think? Oh, I, I, uh, we are huge believers at MIT. Uh, one of the founding principles of MIT is men's admonis, mind and hand, uh, learning by doing. In fact, the funny thing is that... Uh, when MIT was established, uh, MIT was a reaction to an existing system um, at Harvard. I like to pick on Harvard, by the way. It's, it's, it's fun. It's, let's play. Uh, but um, Harvard was really designed for, mm, you know, frankly, white Anglo-Saxon upper-class Protestant males to learn science in Latin by memorization, right? So, uh, and, and I was talking to uh, some colleagues earlier today, and the whole MIT principle was, Learning by doing, you know, bring the soot and the mills into the, into the uh, educational realm and have the science and the, and the, and the, the hands-on part be together. In fact, the word technology was only about 30 years old when MIT was founded. And so it's kind of in your face to call it MIT. Mm -hmm. So for us, playing is essential. Uh, and uh, we have a culture of hacking. We're very proud of it. Uh, you know, uh, for example, uh, in 2016, one of my grad students nearly missed his own PhD defense because he was uh, busy the previous night putting a, uh, sorry, 26, I'm sorry, 2016, 26, 2006, putting a fire engine on the Grand Great Dome <laughs> to commemorate the fifth anniversary of 9-11, right? So this is very central to us, but we're just running out of time. We spend most of our time just those one-way conversations. We're done with that. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to re reclaim... Playtime, magic time. Uh, this all sounds fantastically optimistic and exciting, but people have very different learning styles, don't they? Mm -hmm. And how do you account for that when you're trying to explode the nation of the, of the lecture, that there are multiple learning styles within any one lecture theatre? 
the, see, that's the beauty of it. I thought Joe put it really well. And you, you have the lecture, it's online, but then when you are in a studio-like environment where you're discussing, you can have your cake and eat it too. You know, I mean, I have, I've had students come up to me and say, hey, listen, just sit down and please walk me through this. And I'll walk them through it, right? And it's far more efficient than this one-size-fits-all lecture, right? Than others who say, look, I understand it, but I know the other concept and they don't square, you know, look at it completely differently. And you have the opportunity, maybe I or a tier or another professor to say, you know, it's actually the same thing, but it's, you, if you look at it this way, you can see how they connect. And, and actually, Mani and I were talking earlier this morning. What it does is it's what I, I call participatory teaching, uh, learning, right? Where you participate um, in what Mani, uh, I think, put very elegantly as uh, in the creation of knowledge. Instead of just being presented knowledge, you learn how to create it. And so it gives you a little bit more command, right? It's not something that came down from the heavens that is being delivered to you, you fool, right? It's human, it's a human creation. You are human and you can create. So that empowering thing I think is very powerful. And I do think you can match different learning styles better, in fact. Mm. Uh, Joe, it's interesting to reflect, though, on how important the element of human interaction remains here, because I know that some kinds of online learning have huge dropout rates, and um, Laura mentioned earlier that she'd done some MOOCs, the, the massive online open courses. And I know the, the dropout rates there can be absolutely enormous. So that level of personal interaction and relationship forming has to be still a really important key here, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, part of the lecturer's role has always been inspiration. You, know? mm -hmm. um, you could do a lot worse than just go into a room, inspire people to go read the textbook, you know, and then come back to you and then inspire you again. You know, that's, that's a model and it's, it's not a bad one. That's how internal religions work. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but um, I think it's, it's unfair to MOOCs to, to, to point to this enormous dropout, right? You know? People play. I, I, I have accounted for the enormous dropout rate when I'm gone. I wonder, you know, how they do this MOOC. For my purposes, I go scan, scan, scan. Oh, that's how they do it. I, I had never any interest in doing that MOOC. I just wanted to see their, their tools and techniques. You know, the, the, real, the real sort of success of something like that is of people who engage. How many of those drop out? And then if you look at those, the numbers are vastly better. So... Um, but still, inspiration is a, is a critical part of the tool. I think face-to-face -face time, what is that for, is the key question. If you're, if you're redesigning an educational experience, it's like, what is face-to-face -face time for? What would you use it for if you only got a bit? You know? And you know, at some level, it's a complete waste to use it for anything other than connection. You know, and for the ability to say, oh, that's exactly my problem, or this is exactly some thoughts about that. Oh, this is, everyone's different, you know, and, and the ability to relate to them very individually is the whole point of talking to someone. Right? Mm -hmm. Can I just comment yeah, on the dropout sure. rates? You know, so we have dropout rates of five to 10%. You know, I, I just don't get the hand-wringing about it. I'll tell you why. Um, MIT admission rates are 8%, right? Um, these are hard courses in an MIT uh, course. So random people around the world are signing up and they get no credit for it, and five to 10% of them are finishing, uh, I think that's stunning. Would you be happy if it were 100%? No, because that means we really made the class really boring, I mean easy, right? <laughs> Would you be happy if it was like 0%? Obviously not. Yeah. So what's a good number to pick? Maybe admission rates at MIT? 
Mm. I, you know, I don't, I have no issue with it at all. Well, and people who are signing up for MOOCs are doing so for the absolute pleasure of learning, aren't they? Yeah, a that's, lot of people are just learning. Point. And there are, you know, as Joe said, you're just looking at something, you know, mm. I'm happy with 7%. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to throw this open in a moment or two to the floor. So if you've got questions, calculate them and uh, be ready to put your hands up. But Laura, I wanted to ask you first, you know, what would you like the classroom of the future to look like? Ooh, what an open question. <laughs> I really do value the face-to-face, -face, but I would hate to see if this wonderful technology that we've got just went to waste. So I'd like to see um, small class sizes, people doing problem-based learning, people having someone there, whether it's a tutor or the lecturer, that they can talk to if they don't understand, who will catch them if they're falling behind and also maybe seminars or research directions, lecture, that's what one of my courses is doing at the moment. Just a random professor comes in from either ANU or another university and just tells you what they're working on. So then you've got that little element of inspiration, but also the content, being able to access it, access it on your smartphone, online, on a great interface where it's accessible, it's easy to, easy to get to, um, and that you can engage with it no matter what your learning style is. So something that caters for different students, but something very different to what we have today, unfortunately. Caitlin, you're still sitting in a school situation where people know you know who you are, they perhaps know your parents, they worry about you individually, they know all about your personality. Things will change when you go to university. What are you looking for in a university? Well, the uh, thing about university is, um, as Laura said, like it's you still really need that human interaction. I don't think um, you can fully rely on technology for that. Like it's not just also with the educator. You need student on student interaction because we learn from each other as well. Um, but looking for um, accessibility um, with technology in as many places as possible and on many platforms. Um, looking for different styles of teaching to cater for the different learning styles because every student um, is an individual that learns a different way, um, which is something that we all seem to agree on. That um, being able to create a teaching style that caters for all the different kinds of learning is very difficult, but um, utilising all the wonderful technology that's currently being developed, um, such as MOOCs, um, we can really sort of put this all together to um, create um, different levels of learning to engage everyone. And zombies. Maybe <laughs> zombies. Okay. Uh, let's, let me turn it over to you. Now, um, we've got a microphone on either side of the room, so let's, yeah, we'll get the first one to you and then move on. Joe, have you farmed out the boring bits? Um, absolutely not. So one of my goals in producing these lectures was to make sure that I did the inspiration part. You know, so there are there are technical parts, and the other goal of of inspiring and and putting interesting things there is absolutely vital. You know, you can't 
you can't live on, on trust, you know. Trust me, this is important. Trust me, these 14 pages of equations will really matter to you one day, right? You, you have to inspire people as part of the process. Technology, I think, often becomes uh, a bit of a placebo. We can teach better because we have these tools, you know. Uh, at some level, the limiting element is always the human, you know. So what, what technology can do is it can take away problems, you know, artificial problems. The, the inability to access things, knowledge, right? That problem is very fixable by technology. But the problem of how do I learn, how do I get these things to my brain, what inspires me, that's, that's about the details. It's about what you do, that's about people, that's about teaching. Mm. Sanjay, I'm seeing a little bit of an issue here perhaps for the rock star performer rather than the educator and the teacher. That's, that's, that's a problem, isn't it? Potentially so. <clears throat> you mean because um, for the educator and teacher, this is a dis disadvantage? Mm. Well, not yeah, yes and no. Look, I mean, the fact of the matter is that behind the scenes, you know, when we're setting up uh, teaching schedules at MIT, there is an element of, you know, that, that lady, she teaches really well. Let her do the lectures, and these other professors can help out, right? The, yeah. It happens. So let's not kid ourselves. Mm. Now, the fact is that mentoring and in-person communication and coaching and workshops and studios, they're, they're the great equalizer. Uh, because a professor who's not great on stage may actually be a wonderful mentor, may have a warmth, uh, may have uh, empathy that um, is, doesn't work on stage but works wonderfully one-to-one. Uh, -one. So I, I think we, we will learn, and, and often those are the relationships that really change the student's life, right? Um, so my view is that in some ways this equalizes things. Uh, it gives, it doesn't put every professor, professors who don't like lecturing or are not really good at it, doesn't, you know, judge them on that stage and rather gives them an opportunity to really individually uh, impact students. I, I, I think it's actually better. Okay. Um, next question up here. Yep. Hello. Nothing. Hello. Um, is these massive online courses the principal, what is it, the principal model that we have in order to change the lecture model? Because in my own perspective, um, when you get into a massive online course, you get into it, you see like a lot of material, a lot of material, and most of the people drop out because of that. They cannot just handle it like quite easily. So is this the principal thing or there are other products that we can like do in order to change the lecture model. Thanks. Mm. Uh, um, uh, Laura, I'd be interested in why you've gone to MOOCs and not necessarily worked through them. Well, I, as part of my role as the UNUSA Education Officer, I went on edX and just had a look at what ANU was doing there, looked to see if there was something that I liked. I found a few that I thought I'd be interested in, signed up, just got a feel of what it was like in the same way that you might have gone on to see how they've taught it. Um, it was purely for my position. Um, I did see some that maybe when I finished honours, I'd be able to then tackle and then I'd be keen to go back as a, like a graduate and try them. Um, but I think that we're almost confusing two debates. There's the, mm -hmm. do we get rid of lectures 
um, put those, that material online, do a flipped classroom, and there's a MOOCs as a standalone thing and maybe accessing parts of them and bringing that into the classroom. Um, so I guess that, that is one of the concerns that I was thinking about before I came to this. It's like trying to talk to students and try and explain to them we've got this thing called MOOCs and we've got this thing called a flipped classroom. What does that actually mean? And they're not the same thing and we're not actually, we don't actually have to cut all contact hours and put everything online because I think we're all agreed that, that would be bad. But there is an opportunity to take some of the good bits and mould it together. And I think that's what the concern is, that a MOOC, when you look at it, is just overwhelming. And if that was your entire on-campus experience, that wouldn't be a good thing, mm. I and, think. And Sanjay, maybe a comment from you on this. I think there also is a question to be asked about what MOOCs are for for the university, what the, what the university's purpose is in, in putting this information out there. That's a good question. Um, uh, about 15 years ago, MIT put its entire curriculum online, open courseware. Um, and now we have, as I said, two and a half million visitors a month. Um, why did we do that? Just because we felt that knowledge should be free. It's a mission thing. Mm. Why, why do we do MOOCs? So that students around the world can, you know, it's a matter of is your glass half empty or is it fully empty, right? <laughs> if our glass is fully empty, a glass half, half empty ain't so bad, right? <laughs> so for a student in uh, India who has no access to education or a student in Mongolia, as we have a classic story of that, it's wonderful. But that doesn't mean that for students who have residential education that the MOOC should be a replacement. Quite the opposite. In fact, what the MOOC does is it lets you spend more time with you know, doing the magic, the FaceTime. Mm. So those are two different things, absolutely. And they're two entirely different missions, mm. right? It just so happens that the tools for doing both are the same. Yeah. In some ways you could say, we're doing, in some ways you could think of MIT's mission or approach as follows. We are doing online digital tools to enrich our classrooms. Oh, by the way, we think they're useful to the world. Should we just bring them up there for everyone? Mm, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, actually, if I uh, could follow on what you were just saying in terms of MIT experience, uh, because when we are talking about flipping the classroom, right, so you do use digital tools for, to improve teaching in the classroom. My experience here at ANU is that by doing that, um, uh, basically, I have half of a flipped uh, uh, classroom in the sense that half of the students, they've got jobs, like you're saying, they do various things. So I've got half of them in class. We've got discussion-based approach, as, you know, some questions set even in advance. So I guess my question there is, how do we um, service, how do we teach, how do we educate those students who, for many reasons, are not showing up in class? Um, what they have at the moment is obviously is a recording of the discussion with the students who are in class. But then I would think that's probably not really the best way of servicing students who are really the ones who are online. Um, what, what is your experience? What is that works best uh, for them? Mm. Well, I, honestly, I don't uh, feel I'm qualified to answer that because we don't have, you know, because all our students are residential. And so when we flip the classroom, we expect all the students to show up. And actually, they love it. Most of them show up. Uh, if you have working students, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't had to deal with that, so I'm not qualified. Uh, Joe, I could certainly go to you on that, though. And sure. look, I know just from the interns that we have at the ABC, we, we have people who were, you know, night managers at, at, at clubs and worked full-time, essentially, throughout the whole of their degree. This yeah. is a really common thing in Australia now to have people who are essentially working full-time in order to just sustain themselves. How do you engage those those people? Well, it's, it's easier, right? Mm. So um, I was... When making my workshops sort of available, I really wanted people to turn up 
And so I was trying to find a way of making them turn out without making them assessed, because I wanted to have that magic, right? I wanted that play. And so I took the step of making them compulsory. But that made it one compulsory thing in the week. And so that's a, that's, that is actually a lot easier to schedule than, you know, an hour here, an hour there, do, 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 do. And everything else is far more flexible. You know, you can, and in fact, every student pretty much said, this is easier. I, it fits in my life easier because it happens when I want it to. You know, I, I do these, these three lectures a week at 11 at night. I do it sometimes Thursday, sometimes Tuesday. It doesn't matter to anybody else, right? And so this is actually far more flexible. So the only thing I had to enforce was that face-to-face -face time. And because it's concentrated, that's actually kind of easier in a way. And so I didn't have, in my single example, uh, any issues, actually. Also, I should say that pedagogically, there is evidence that when you show a discussion, students warm up to it better, more than if you just have a professor talking. So one of the things you do is you have students discuss, and you use that as the video. So while it's not the same as face-to-face, -face, it's actually pedagogically better than one way. Uh, next question up here. Yep. Is it work? Yep. Yes. Oh, yes, sorry. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask, you know, obviously these online, not online, like, you know, MOOCs and stuff, and to make taking this, like, technological switch, like, uses an enormous amount of resources. And, you know, these resources inevitably cost money. And so are we going to potentially, because no one wants to go into their MOOC and have it, like, crash their browser. So are we going to create this sort of situation where it's not about, you know, the quality of learning, but rather the amount of money the uni has to spend on resources? And also, on that same kind of note, is a university that has less money to spend on resources going to have its students kind of severely disadvantaged? Mm. That's a really interesting question, because one of the inevitabilities of what we're talking about is that universities that have an enormous amount of resourcing, like MIT, are going to have a huge capacity here. That's going to be very different to a number of Australian universities, for example, which have, which have been converted from technical colleges, colleges of further education, and where the resourcing is infinitely less. So that, that's a very live question, isn't it, Sanjay? I think it's a wonderful question. Um, and it has many dimensions. Uh, one is, yeah, some, you know, for example, um, you know, you only see it, for example, in, uh, in media, right? And you have Yahoo News or, you know, Google puts out something and it kind of dominates everything else. Mm. Uh, so you could have a one, um, a winner-takes-all um, issue. The good news, though, is that if you, the other thing is we don't have to think of a course, a 15-week, a 13-week course as a monolith. Think of modules, right, little modules, and you could almost, again, think dim sum. You can reconstruct things and maybe there's a, let's say I'm discussing, you know, my topic, dynamics. Maybe there's a, a way to use um, a cricket ball or something or, you know, a, a rugby ball to describe it, that's more appealing to students in Australia than to students in America. But they play this horrible game called baseball, by the way. Right, and it doesn't work, right? So my point is that if, you, if, you, if, it, if it's a one-size-fits-all 13-week class, yes, but if you break it up, maybe we'll maintain the diversity. The, the flip side is we also need to be careful about the digital divide, and I'm concerned about that. Uh, you know, we don't want the children of the people in this room or, you know, the folks in this room to just take these classes and you know, folks in poor neighborhoods or poor countries do not even hear about this, right? So we, we, we have a moral responsibility on both sides to make sure that diversity is maintained. I think it's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking that. Joe? So there are two parts to that question. The first was, was resources from students, like, you know, power and so forth, I assume you're talking about. So we mustn't underestimate the 
cost of transport. If you want to be in a place, you've just spent so much more of Earth's resources than if you wanted to run a computer for a while, right? So, so energy-wise, it's certainly cheaper to do a distributed method. I think actually, the in terms of equity, right, for, for poorer, richer, you might decide not to care so much about the universities and care more about the students, right? So, so it might be that a, a university that doesn't have quite the same resources um, can't necessarily produce as much MOOC, right? But fine, okay. They can still teach students. In fact, what we're currently doing with, with, our, with our online resources that we're making for either via MOOC or a, or a flipped classroom is we're actually sharing them between universities. So it's like, I've got this course on that. There, you can, you can do the local teaching, right? It's actually easier for them. In other words, in other words, people can import bits of their program that they need desperately. So you can't put on a whole program, you don't have the money. Actually, you can put on a really good program, because all you need to do is take, take the MIT program, add bits to it, you know, do a value add, where you actually have the face-to-face -face time mean something, and you provide something. And that's, and that's a value add. You know? And of course, students around the world are all better. They, they've either got the resources of their local university, but all the boats are floating, right? So if you can, can cherry-pick the best of all sorts of things, then that's better. Pretty much by definition. I, I really wonder what we're going into here, though, because we're having a real transition in this country um, towards greater emphasis on user pays and universities with enormous resources and who are able to charge a great deal more. Uh, one of the questions that we're really tossing up in our political discussion. And, Caitlin, I might go to you on the question of how much you'd be willing or able to pay for a university education. Exactly. Don't put a figure on it. I don't want you to put a figure on it. Yeah. You have to go to university in this country from 2016. Yeah. So. But, but is that something that, that, that you think that, that cost is going to equal value for you? Um, well, that's the thing with the university education is I know um, major, the, the large portion of people who go to university to um, get accreditation to say um, that you like have the qualifications. Um, while there are still people who study for the love of it, um, there are a lot of people who are looking for work who need um, these degrees to acquire jobs. And the thing is, if um, it's sort of seen as if you want to get a good job, you have to go to university to study to get this degree. So you are willing to like put a lot of money initially towards this um, university degree to sort of um, cement your future. So um, I think oh, it's interesting because like um, university and education, um, sh should we have to pay for um, like as extensively as what is going to happen um, <laughs> um, for the education and the learning and the lessons that we get? Um, perhaps not, perhaps we should not have to pay that much, but um, will people, and of course, because knowledge is just so valuable and just so needed. Uh, Laura, and I do want to go to you on that question as a current student, because this is a really interesting point that we're at. We've gone in this country from having free education mm. to deferred charges to more and more charges, and I don't want to wander too far off the point here. Yeah, but, I don't want that. <laughs> but, but this is, when we're talking about the kinds of access to the kinds of learning that Joe and Sanjay are describing, it is for universities that have got the capacity to do that, and maybe we do risk a two-speed situation developing. Yeah, and I would hate to see education in this country become a two-tiered education system where access to good quality education that universities with the budget to run MOOCs can offer is limited by what you're willing to put up 
upfront or what debt you're willing to take on. And I don't want, to, want this panel on online education to end up to be some sort of protest on fee regulation or anything else that could happen. Um, but when we're talking about technology that could vastly improve the quality of education and when access to that is limited by how much the university is willing to cough up and how much the university is willing to place on teaching ahead of research, for instance, inequities do start to arise and if, in the end, the inequity is placed on the student and their access to that education, that would be very unfortunate. Okay, well, let's move on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think we've got, yeah, next question. Uh, right now, the discussion really has been about teacher to student in that learning equation. However, student to teacher learning is just as important. And I was wondering what the panel thinks that this type of discussion we've had will help teachers learn from their students in the way that we currently get in a, for face-to-face -face education. Okay, Joe. Uh, we're not, at this point, unless we're talking MOOCs, we're not actually comparing face-to-face -face education with not face-to-face -face education. We're comparing broadcast face-to-face -face education with studio style. And in fact, if you have a, a teacher going around a classroom dealing with each student's individual things all the time, then they have to be better and they have to look there. They get more from that experience than if they're sort of emitting to a kind of assumed average or, or responding to the few people that are consistently asking questions or can be, can be bullied into asking questions. So uh, I think it's, you know, the magic, uh, which is the target for this face-to-face -face stuff, is, is better than ever. You, it, you really can't conflate flip classroom with MOOCs. You know, MOOCs are the are the, the surprise about MOOCs is how good they are, actually. A fully online thing has to be strictly worse than a thing that can be online and other things as well, right? Because it's just a less constrained problem. So the, the probably the surprise over the last few years for me is actually how good you can do a MOOC if you really want to. And so the sort of the worst case scenario <laughs> is actually surprisingly good. But then if you use all those tools, to sort of make things good in your in your face-to-face -face stuff as well as kind of that's the backup and now we do this as well, then hopefully you can float the the fa the face-to-face -face education as well mm. in a similar way. Uh, Sanjay, let me ask you whether this was challenging for you. You and I are of a generation where we do perhaps remember seeing our first computers and um, and what have you learnt from the students in the process of this really big turnover we've seen in digital learning? Um, you know, I have to say that I've never ever taught a class and not learnt. Um, something from it. Uh, it may be from the students, it may be from just the way, you know, I have to think about it again. What we're seeing with digital learning is a form of crowdsourcing, actually, mm. which is profound. Um, you know, even with MOOCs, uh, you know, we have these blogs. If you watch a blog, the sort of insights you see there are amazing. And it's, uh, as Joe said, it's an eye-opener for me. In fact, I would say that as a professor, as you know, the director of digital learning, I watch all the classes. Uh, it's been an extraordinary experience. You know, for example, you're teaching something, and some student says, "Hey, I found this YouTube video that says the same thing differently and better." You go look at it, and you go, "My God!" You know, <laughs> these guys—they schlepped a, a pool table, a billiards table for you folks, onto a merry-go-round, and they can show the Coriolis force, which leads to, you know, the uh, hurricanes. Much better than all the boring math I was doing. You know? <laughs> uh, so it's actually been actually it's been profound and you know something that uh, I hadn't anticipated. 
Okay. Um, yeah, up here. So, Joe, earlier you touched on the democratisation of information. I think that it's about time that universities started catching up to that. And MIT OpenCourseWare, of course, is an amazing example of that. Um, I'm really interested in uh, the democratisation of education. And this is something that Sanjay touched on before with the idea that, you know what, we it's better than being uh, glass empty. It's a glass half full. What does online education um, offer in terms of... Um, I guess the more skills-based things, because we'd all agree that an education is more than just mere information. It's about the ability to use it in a constructive way. Um, I'd be interested to hear from the students about how they've uh, engaged with any online education they've had in terms of like assessment and stuff, and um, from the academics to hear about uh, what is there, is there anything more promising than what's called the, you know, the current green tick method? Are there um, promising futures in terms of more developed and nuanced way of using the information that we get online? Okay, let me go to you first, Laura, on that. Online assessment. So I've done some multiple choice quizzes online where, yep, you get a ticker across and then it's like, but why? Why did I get that wrong? Who do I go speak to about that? Um, there's just something good about, you know, a marker's scrawl and a bit of paper saying, you know, should have done this, did you think of that? Or oh, here's your working. Um, online essays, I've also submitted some and just got a number back and having to book an appointment with the tutor to you know, find out why, again, that scrolling um, is always really helpful just to have someone explain to you more than a yes or no what you've done wrong and why and that, that problem-based learning and that thought process, that's what's important. I haven't had much other experience. What about in high school? Is that a thing? Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of um, the same kind of idea. We've started to use um, sort of online testing and stuff, mm. but it's very much, again, the green tick sort mm. of idea that you still have to go to the teacher in person if you want to find out what you did wrong or why, or the same with essays. However, this technology is allowing for different like kinds of um, assessment to be formulated, as in you can use technology for your assessment piece and to support it. Um, which is interesting, sort of the new developments that are happening with that. Mm. Okay. Um, Sanjay? Well, I mean, the, um, uh, it depends on how you deploy uh, online um, learning, right? I mean, there are so many different ways to deploy it. And the uh, sort of benefits you get from it vary depending on what you're doing. Mm. Uh, maybe we can talk about it more afterwards. I can give you more information about that. But it's, it's, a, it's a highly nuanced thing. And right now we're talking about online and this, it's a word, right? But there's automatic assessments, there's, uh, you know, there are all these things that have, you can accrue benefits from. You don't have to do the whole thing. So. And Joe, I wonder too whether you think that really it strikes me that a lot of, from a lot of this discussion that we're really just at the beginning of understanding where this can go. Um, and the answers we've just heard about, you know, assessment and the kind of framework you set up for that would indicate that we've probably got a long way to, to explore. Um, how we could use this more effectively. Yeah, so assessment and, and skills task things is certainly a much harder problem than the provision of information and, and explanations mm -hmm. and so forth. There are, however, an enormous number of really good examples of doing it well, where you make a mistake and it actually says, oh, it looks like you made exactly this kind of mistake. Have you and in fact, an online thing can be far more patient uh, one, of the, one of the examples that, that really hits me is watching my children learn their letters and learn how to write letters and so forth. Like, ABC's reading eggs is so much more patient than I can possibly be. You know, I think of myself as a good father, I think of myself as a good teacher, but oh my goodness, you know, like just watching this iPad just continue to provide the support on the letter A, you know, it's... it's, it's um, it's actually possibly better, you know. 
Although I have managed to upset Siri very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so. But, but in, a, in a bigger example, like for more complicated things, yeah, it's a really hard problem. There are lots of works being done. Uh, and possibly, you know, we'll, we'll reach the limit where it can't go any further. But I think at some level, those really hard problems, they, you can do a probably surprisingly good job once again. But the amount of resources, time, energy, research, and so forth you have to do to make that happen goes up, right? So we're, we're sort of hitting the, the low-lying fruit early on. And then as people really want to teach particular skills in particular ways, it's quite possible that some very good ideas will come through. And certainly a lot, a lot have. There are a lot of good examples that mm. um, you know, we could go through, but probably and, shouldn't. And perhaps, <laughs> it's, um, perhaps it's a metaphor, some regret, that we've been exploring this in very much a science-based context, because it just strikes me while you're talking that what we're not discussing here is responses that are nuanced and complex and responses that, that come in, you know, in the humanities where what you're looking at is, is shadings of difference, many right responses rather than a single answer or a right process that's leading you in a particular direction. And, and that's something that's quite complex to address in an online environment, yeah. isn't it? There's an enormous amount of work in artificial intelligent markers, mm. actually, on humanities essays. Mm. And for the life of me, I can't imagine it working, to be honest. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. But um, early testing seems to suggest it does as good as people, which is kind of scary. <laughs> Maybe it says more about our marking than... But, but the point is, it's, it's sometimes surprising what you can do. Just with sheer effort. Yeah. As an engineer, give us time, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, actually, the other, if I may, just yeah. a quick, quick comment. So one of the things that, we, uh, that online courses do is peer grading. Peer grading. The act of grading a peer's uh, homework is actually in itself pedagogically very useful. Um, we were doing this before online. We were having our st students write papers and other students um, uh, you know, do reviews of them. Um, and with online, that becomes because you have to do it. If we, if, until the AI system works. But it's also a wonderful learning experience. So, you know, it's, it's different. And mm. it's very nuanced. Although peer grading in something like a MOOC, where you really don't understand how the peer grading has taken place and why, is quite a different thing from doing it in a tutorial, isn't it? You know, I, 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 let me just say that I was skeptical. Mm. But I heard a talk by a Michael Rapkin, who's a professor of uh, literature, who taught a MOOC on poetry. Mm. And uh, apparently he went in extremely uh, skeptical. And then he taught it, and he was so uh, blown away by it that he went around the country, the United States, giving talks about it, saying, look, this works. So the peer grading, what they do is they have ways to select peers who are just the right combination of you know, um, beginner level, advanced level. One of the great things about MOOCs, MOOCs is you have a spectrum of users. You have you know, your 70-year-old, you know, who wants to learn poetry, and you have your 13-year-old who wants to write a poem you know, to someone on Facebook, to someone he likes, right? <laughs> and um, so there's an interesting way to map expertise. So it works surprisingly well. I don't know how it works, but it does. OK, uh, and up here. Yep. Um, Tom Worthington from the Research School of Computer Science here. I gave up giving lectures about five years ago, and the online stuff works fine. Um, most of the, a large proportion of the students are from India and China. They're paying a lot of money here. Um, will we see what happened with the automotive industry where first Japan and then Korea learnt to make high quality cars and essentially took over the industry? How long before China and India learned to design high quality uh, educational materials and perhaps put the Australian and 
most of the US universities out of business? That's a terrifying question. Well, let me leave me answer that. Um, I, let me, I'll put it on, and I'm live streamed, being live streamed. Yeah, I went to the Indian Institute of Technology for my undergrad. Um, some ridiculous number of people took the exam, and some ridiculously small number of students got in. Uh, I have to say that it was a little insane, but I haven't been surrounded by the sort of distillation of raw IQ, low EQ, by the way, uh, right? And the professors were pretty good. Um, IIT Bombay is already producing MOOCs. Uh, India has been producing, there's a program called NPTEL, National Public Television, that goes back almost 10 years. And they have this incredible corpus of videos, very technical. So when I want to learn about batteries, you know, I go to either MIT OpenCourseWare, I go to NPTEL. So this is a competitive world, and we need to be ready for it. Now, the one thing that is more equalizing here is manufacturing went to um, the U uh, to China eventually. By the way, Japan and Korea are losing manufacturing to China because of cost of labor, right? But in, I think in learning, um, it is a thinking process. It's not so much the cost of labor, it's the upside of the thinking process. So I do believe that countries that get ahead of the game have a big advantage. Uh, and I think it'll be a few years before it gets that utterly democratized, mm. you know. Joe, is this the end product of the democratization of learning? Great, you know. Oh no, a whole bunch of other countries start putting amazing free uh, educational materials online. You know, maybe we won't be seen as masters of all we survey anymore. Uh, that's fine, you know. Like we will just have to get better. You know, it's a, it's a competitive world, but it's not like we're going to have a good life if we decide we better not tell anyone all the important things about the universe that we know or else then they'll know it and we, you know, we've got to just get smart, you know, bring it on. <laughs> okay. uh, we've got uh, right up the back, yep. Yep, okay, so um, let's assume that we're talking about the flipped classroom still and not just purely online courses. I'm wondering if you can comment on the feasibility of this kind of model of online learning plus this dynamic face-to-face -face interaction with the kind of current financial climate that we find um, in the Australian university system at the moment and the increasing pressures on funding. And the two things that I'm thinking about here are the increasing casualization of the universities and the way in which teaching staff are predominantly casual. Uh, so for example, last semester I was co-convening a course uh, in, so uh, it was in uh, gender studies and we were given like $13,000 for two people's wages for that entire semester. And I would have loved to do something really d dynamic with the lectures, because I find them really boring to give, but um, that would be totally on my own time and not paid. So there's that. Um, and then the other side of that is Ian Young, our Vice-Chancellor, has been pretty clear that under a deregulated university system that a lot of the extra funding will actually go towards research and not teaching. So how much are we really going to be investing in um, teaching? That's what I'm asking in, in terms of this model that you're proposing. Mm, and I, I think that's actually a really interesting question to ask at any university that's hoping to balance undergraduate and research work. Joe's teaching under threat. Well, I mean, I can't speak for the future budgetary decisions of our university. Um, but I can say that the total, yes, teaching new ways and new things is very expensive. But then teaching any new course, you know, costs a lot of time and energy and effort. Uh, and I would say that 
this was in fact more resource intensive, I would probably get that time back over about maybe four or five years if I, if I keep teaching this course. And so I, I try to understand, a, a casualization of, of our teaching workforce, it's not really gonna work to, if we ask them to make the online material and, and then deal with it. On the other hand, it's a really good way to blood yourself on teaching to have a course where somebody else has got the material, the textbook, the videos, whatever it may be, and you get to work the room. You know, if you if you come in and it's like, all right, you're now going to to talk to all the students and you're going to run the workshops and so forth, that actually might work. You know, and in fact, if you have someone coming in for a short amount of time, they can do a little bit of that and and get probably as much out of it from the as we were talking before. You know, the the teachers learn a lot in this process as well. I think that's that's probably quite viable, and so it can be left to the to the you know comfortable tenured types to, to create stuff, or possibly people from other universities, you know? Maybe your course has actually done really well at you know, Berkeley or something, and so we'll take that MOOC and now we'll teach around it. And so I totally understand the concerns and the worries. On the other hand, it doesn't shut people out from teaching necessarily. It just means that you would be dealing with the students rather than perhaps preparing materials if the material preparation is going to be sort of highly produced. Uh, Sanjay, it occurs to me that one of the questions that arises here, we've been talking a lot about things being great and popular and really well done and really well organised. There are going to be inherently some courses and some components of courses that just don't fit that paradigm. They're things that are important to know and are really worthwhile but are never going to be fantastically popular and really amenable to sort of exciting digital conversion. Is that an issue? Well, I mean, I don't think it's an issue. I think we just, it's a, it's a fact. Yeah. And uh, we just confront it. And there are things that will not uh, become, uh, I mean, I'm not sure I want to be, uh, undergo surgery uh, if the doctor had learned her stuff or his stuff online, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, uh, there's, in other words, there are different modalities. The, the thing here mm -hmm. is there's so much upside in this opportunity before we run into those issues, okay. right, mm -hmm. that we should just explore them, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I just want to also make a comment on the economics. You know, uh, we've talked about flipping classrooms, which is great. It will be tempting for universities to take away the face time because it saves money. That's a slippery slope. And so, um, um, you know, at MIT, that's why we have this conservation of face time law, if you will, right? Um, but, you know, that's something that uh, we'll have to watch for. Mm, yeah. And uh, Laura, could I get a, a comment from you on that retention of, of both FaceTime? And look, I have this this thing that I've used a number of times on air to say that I, I think there should always be a place in universities for the small number of people who want to learn Sanskrit, for the, for the people who want to do obscure, unpopular, small things, um, which are really we valuable. Have someone here yeah, yeah, which is great. If that opportunity remains, I, am, I think that's tremendously important. We don't want to lose that, do we? No, of course not. And with ANU's current double degree model, like the ads say, study one degree that you want to get a job in and study one thing that you love. So there should be that opportunity for that breadth of subjects. You could always do both. You could always <laughs> love what you do. I just would yeah, throw that I, out there. I think, I think at the core of it, you don't want this to be... <laughs> you don't want this to be... We're making these things online and we're pumping out our mm. top-performing academics with their MOOCs and it's at the expense of 
a breadth of subjects and it's at the expense of face-to-face -face time. Mm. Yep. Yeah, and that, I, I see that as a concern. I really think that we need to be able to have the love of learning be a huge motivator and that that's something that we can't lose. Um, yep, yep. Yeah. Hello. Right. Yeah, we got you now. Uh, Go on. Um, my question: we, we just mentioned uh, the, the different the economics and the costs, um, and it was a pretty simple question: uh, how how much does it cost to develop a course that um, I guess both the flipped classroom type and also the MOOCs? And I wonder if both Sanjay and Joe could comment the difference between an MIT course and an ANU course <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to run. Because I've heard different figures and, and I've you know read about MOOCs for a while now and, that, and heard different figures thrown around and, and different amounts need to be invested to make these courses work. Um, and sometimes when not enough is invested, they don't. Mm. Okay, Sanjay? Well, let me take a stab at it. The, um, uh, to be very frank, our first few uh, courses cost, uh, I think the technical term is gobs of money. <laughs> <laughs> right, and they shouldn't have, but we were jump-starting a whole industry. We were, you know, writing software, all that stuff. I do believe that um, the cost of producing a MOOC will eventually drop to about twice the cost of actually teaching the course, right? which ain't so bad because then you recoup, as, as Joe said, you know. So that's the way to think about it, right? The actual uh, um, absolute numbers, I think they're kind of irrelevant because they still learn, you know, we're taking the brunt of it, frankly. We're learning, right? Uh, but I do think we'll get it down to a, an art form. Once we figure out, you know, it's got to be five minutes, ten minutes, there's a lot of efficiencies. As Joe, I mean, I, there's something subtle that he said that I, I hope uh, people picked up on. A one-hour class is about 20 minutes of carefully scripted, well-organized thinking in lecture time. So once you nail all that, the cost will start coming down. Um, and, you know, uh, we hope for that. And as I do think that it will be about twice the cost of actually teaching it in a regular way. Yeah, I think there's, there's an interesting parallel to be made when people homeschool their children and the discovery yeah. that you can actually fit in most of that in a morning rather yeah. than an entire teaching day. And that's because of you know, the structural issues and the transition and the, the stuff that surrounds face-to-face -face teaching, which is not to devalue it. But, right. Joe? So I've got a couple of data points. I mean, I'd, Sanjay would probably have a lot more actual figures. The the cost for making the videos for me came down, the cost was my time, right? So I, I bought a $2,000 tablet and then I spent, you know, uh, 50 days. So it's about a bit over a day per lecture for me. That's what, that's what I peaked out at. And I was very happy with that production quality. And the, the production quality decisions make a big difference. You know, the, the beautiful kind of ghost hand does beautiful art while you speak that you see on kind of, you know, professional programs, actually doesn't work as well pedagogically and it's much more expensive to produce. The, the MOOC that people in my department made cost a lot more, but nearly all that money went into video, like, you know, high production quality video stuff, which you could just make a call that I don't need that. And, and probably about twice the amount of time that I spent because you spend that amount of time in video and then you spend about that amount of time doing those carefully scripted questions that takes all this extra effort to make. So the, the final run cost is mainly people time and I would have guessed four times actually delivering the course. But you do it and it's done, right? So 
you could argue it's just an upfront cost. You know, is it better to buy or rent? <laughs> <laughs> and also, we're still producing the tools, right? I mean, I remember 20-something years ago, when I was getting my PhD, um, my advisor would call the IT guy to produce a PowerPoint deck. Right? <laughs> <laughs> who does that now? <laughs> In fact, who uses PowerPoint anymore? Anyway, it's all the story. So. <laughs> I hope, I really, after having been through more deaths by PowerPoint than I can possibly imagine, I hope we're coming to the end of that. We've probably only got time for one or two more questions. So yeah, here. on the fly as we do with our lectures. What's going to happen in terms to adaptability to, particularly for us in technology, where things are changing really rapidly, and we've spent a long time creating our courses, our textbooks, um, but suddenly this year, hang on, we need to begin here. Are we going to do that, or are we going to just kick in the, in the butt And that also goes contrary to the question of resourcing as well and what you've got the capacity to put into those courses. Yeah, Sanjay? Well, um, first of all, uh, textbook writers uh, need to worry not just about MOOCs but about Wikipedia. <laughs> you know, uh, I tell you that uh, I reluctantly came to the conclusion about four or five years ago that the Wikipedia topics, uh, pages, and some of the things I teach are actually better than any textbook I can get. Uh, so, in other words, you know, disruption is, is a constant cycle. It's creative destruction, right? Schumpeter, you know, um, you just gotta be ready for creative destruction. Um, and these are the new textbooks. They come out textbook plus plus, right? The textbook's been around since Gutenberg. It's 500 years, I think they had a long run. Okay. I, I'd agree with that. The, the, the MOOC or the, the, the piece, the, the online part, is certainly emotionally the new textbook. You know, if, if we have this kind of um, winner-takes-all kind of effect on particular topics and so forth, you know, the best one rises, everyone starts using that. That's just like the textbook, you know, the textbook that all the universities use on topic X. It's, it's got that kind of saying, we're setting the agenda. But it's, a, it's, a, it's not oppressive in the sense that Anyone can write a new textbook and anyone can put out a new thing, right? So it's, but it's that same kind of space, I agree. And also, yeah. as far as authoring is concerned, you know, YouTube, you could make the argument, YouTube is the MOOC of music, all right? <laughs> it's actually created more musicians, all these indie musicians. And they're, you know, so I, I'm not super worried. Now, as long as, again, if you go modular, you make things very small. Now, as far as uh, refreshing stuff, if you make things modular, it's actually easy to refresh. Now, if you say, well, three lectures ago I did this, well, now you're stuck. Because you can't change it because you got to refer to that three lectures ago thing. So if you think modularity, it's actually a, a much easier to change. And I think it will become, it's like creating a PowerPoint deck. I think we'll change it all the time. Can I? It, it's a mashup culture, well put. Absolutely. And we've got to buy into that. Professors hate it, but that's what we need to buy into. And, and can I just quickly ask both Laura and Caitlin how you feel about the kind of text source that we're describing? Yeah, well, I'm perfectly okay with a series of very good videos replacing a very heavy textbook. Um, but the thing that 
like the question I touched on, I don't think was really addressed, was the day-to-day, -day, this happens in the media and your lecturer just casually mentions it. I absolutely love that. Like in mm. Canberra, for instance, when there were those wild mushrooms which had a poison in them, the next day I go to my genetics lecture and they're like, this is how the poison functions, this is how it interrupts the DNA machinery, and then that's the lecture. And you're What's like, oh, I lost something, I learned something accidentally. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't want that to be lost at the expense of it. Um, but I guess if you know you think it through and you yeah. work it out modularly, um, and you have face-to-face -face 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 time, then, yeah, that could be saved. Like, Caitlin, what about yeah. you? Um, the idea that um, stuff like YouTube clips can be very valuable, but that is not necessarily the way that everyone learns. Not everyone is an auditory learner. Some people do like the physical hard reading material. Um, but what Sanjay was saying about Wikipedia sort of being better than some texts, perchance, it's that there's so many people who can come together on the internet, and just thousands more than you could ever get collecting in the same room um, to edit these texts and to give their ideas on these texts. And that's something that's really interesting. And I think what you're making is a good point there. I've always thought of Wikipedia as a really excellent starting point. Mm. And it's, it's the point that starts you on a particular journey and then you then go cross-referencing and assembling information from that point of view. Uh, I'm not sure if we have another question up the back. Uh, no, you've still got the microphone. That's okay, Catherine, because we'll go to this last one down yeah. here. I think uh, this will have to be our last question. Thank I'd you. I'd like to uh, ask the panel to... Um, give their opinion about which of these um, arguments would um, you advance to convince uh, university <coughs> professors, heads of departments, uh, academic vice chancellors and other people that they ought to uh, promote a move away from the lecture to a more diverse methods of teaching uh, here's a short list, and which ones? Love of learning by students, uh, lifelong learning skills, democratisation of learning, uh, reduced student dropout rates, uh, social justice for lower SES students, um, attract more applicants for enrolment at your university, uh, have more students go through for honours and higher degrees, um, professionally develop your tertiary teaching staff, be internationally competitive or have your graduates better prepared, prepared for their professional careers or be more efficient in the use of resources. Now, um, some of those might resonate with some people, perhaps. You okay. missed one option, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> Sanjay, what resonates with you? Uh, it really depends. It's very, uh, you know, uh, after doing this for two years and talking to a number of universities, it is horses for courses. Everyone... Every university, every situation, every president, every dean, every provost is different. And in every case, I found something resonates, but rarely have I ever found it repeat. The only thing that repeats is including improving the learning experience on campus. That's one thing no one is going to disagree with if they're a university professor, just because they get shot if they did, right? Uh, but, uh, and also possibly because they actually believe that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, Every one of the other things comes up. Learn, continuous education, continuing education, right? That's come up in so many situations. Uh, it's either one or three or two, depending on the university. So I, I, I think it really depends on the situation. Okay. Laura, how did you respond to the list? I think the one that struck me was social justice for students from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, this is something that was touched on earlier on the panel tonight. The fact that this technology is brilliant. It does cost a lot up front. 
and if universities are willing to invest that money into education at the expense of research for the benefit of students from all socioeconomic backgrounds at their university, then I think this is the way forward. Okay. Caitlin, what appealed yeah, to you? Um, I'd like to think for the love of learning of students and, as you said, opportunities for those socio people of those socioeconomic backgrounds, the idea that the students were like the core foundation for this, that um, the, their enjoyment out of learning and the value that they get out of learning was the most important part of this. For universities to invest in that would be the best outcome for me personally. I'm, I'm loving that you're flying the flag for the love of learning. This is fantastic. <laughs> Joe, last word to you. I wouldn't actually try and convince uh, a vice-chancellor to make people do this because the, the details really matter. And if you're going to sink resources into it, then it's a very expensive error to make people, oh, all right, I have to put a line. What, what you really want is people that have uh, the energy to do it are well-resourced and connected to other people that are doing things. So I would, I would use probably all of the, all the above motivations to, you know, it, it matters if you are setting the agenda, you know, if you're writing the textbook, if you're putting one out there, this is, this is a, a standard thing for university to do. And so in some sense, it's an easy sell, but you have to put your best foot forward. So I would, I would be encouraging them to support it, not mandate it. I'm really happy that we've ranged through business and innovation and ended up at the love of learning. That's a nice place to be. One of the things I've learned over quite a few years now of chairing these kinds of panels is that Canberra audiences are typically very smart, very connected, very well informed. So you have been a terrific audience. Thank you. But please also thank our guests, Dr Joe Hope, Professor Sanjay Sama, Laura Way and Caitlin Baljack. Let's thank them all. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.